the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. It's April 20th, or 420 as marijuana enthusiasts refer to it, and we're going to spend a good part of the day talking about where we are with Michigan's journey toward pot legalization. Detroit City Council President Pro Tem James Tate is going to join to talk about the city's new ordinance and we'll talk about the head of the Michigan cannabis industry. Then we'll continue our Earth Week looks at innovative green solutions with a look at net zero carbon housing. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Good day, happy 420, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. So as I said, it is 420, the annual day that marijuana enthusiasts point to as a celebration of all things pot, and that means something really different these days in Michigan than it used to do. That's because we're now about three years into our experiment with legal recreational marijuana. In some ways, it feels like we're really far past the days when law enforcement could be focused on locking people up for smoking weed. And in some ways, it still feels like we're in the infancy of what this new reality is going to be and feel like. Recreational cannabis retailers now exist all across the state. But here in Detroit, which had been a major hub for medical marijuana dispensaries, the embrace of marijuana retail stores is just beginning. We've been thrashing through some procedural things and getting the regulatory environment ready to open recreational marijuana shops. Earlier this month, City Council adopted an ordinance that finally opens the doors for these shops and puts rules in place for where they can operate. So on this 420, we want to start the hour by talking about the state of recreational cannabis here in Detroit and all across the state. We want to hear from you as well, as always, on the phones and on social media. How do you think this experiment with marijuana legalization is going? Do you think it's been a good thing or a bad thing for the state of Michigan? Or maybe is it somewhere in between? Has it changed anything about your life or your community or your business interests since cannabis retailers started operating in the past couple of years? There are so many people who are somehow business connected to the marijuana industry now that it is legal here in Michigan. We want to especially hear from you about how that's going, but we also want to hear from you about uh, how this affects your life, how this affects your community in other ways. We also want to hear from you if you're someone who is new to all this. Did the change in the law open up a world of cannabis and marijuana to you in a way that it didn't before? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. Joining us now to talk about what's going on with marijuana shops and regulation in the city of Detroit is the Detroit City Council President Pro Tem, James Tate. Uh, Councilman Tate, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, it's great to have you here. So what do people need to know? about this new ordinance that passed recently and uh, talk about how this will change communities here in the city of Detroit. You're somebody who's been really, really uh, on top of uh, the effect of this industry and these shops on uh, neighborhoods. You're somebody who's had real concerns uh, about that. So, so tell us where we are with this new law. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Thanks again for the opportunity to have 
<clears throat> this dialogue about this new ordinance that goes into effect today, well, at least a part portion of it does today. Uh, what goes into effect today uh, is applications are going to be uh, begin to be accepted for uh, unlimited licenses, and unlimited licenses in the city of Detroit means growth facilities, um, uh, uh, productive uh, com- production facilities as well. Um, those licenses that are not as competitive. That's what we see uh, going online today. So your cultivators, again, your growers, um, those other licenses, we're still waiting for the Creo department to identify uh, when they will be ready to uh, take in the uh, competitive uh, applications. Um, But today uh, what we have, again, is the uh, unlimited licenses that are going online. And it's been a been a long journey to get to this point. We've been here before, unfortunately, uh, back in uh, 2020 at the end of uh, the very last session of City Council uh, in 2020 in November, uh, City Council passed unanimously the adult use uh, ordinance that uh, dealt with licensing. Uh, When April came around, when the ordinance came into effect uh, in that particular year, last year in 2021, uh, we received a lawsuit. Uh, without going through the long uh, legal process, uh, we were sued and was essentially uh, told that we could not act on our ordinance unless we waited until September of this year uh, to go to trial on this case. Well, that just, just didn't make sense for us. So we started retooling the ordinance and looking at the items that the judge uh, mentioned um, and addressing those concerns. Now, we probably could have gone uh, to court and dragged it out Maybe we would have won. Maybe we would have had to appeal. But there's just too many maybes, uh, along with the potential ballot initiative that was floating around that could take all the control uh, from the, 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 the city government in terms of how this industry uh, would begin, its, you know, as you mentioned earlier, in its infancy, and that's where we are right now. And so what we see is the opportunity for two different tracks for licensees, one for uh, social equity and legacy Detroiters, and then another track is for those who are non-equity. And what we found in, in, around the country, and even in the city of Detroit, is that non-equity applicants typically have uh, more resources and have uh, more networking opportunities than uh, social equity applicants as well as legacy Detroiters. So we've tried to address many of the concerns that uh, folks have had. There's an element of uh, the city providing uh, land and property, but certainly not uh, enough to fulfill all of the needs and desires for everyone who's looking to apply. We're also going to be providing uh, uh, certain discounts, if you will, for legacy Detroiters uh, and uh, potentially uh, equity applicants. But again, it certainly is not going to uh, fill all of the buckets that folks will need to close all of their resource gaps. Uh, we also are, are have been, even all the way back to 2021, we never stopped having workshops on getting uh, marijuana entrepreneurs, uh, cannabis entrepreneurs who are looking to seek, uh, seeking to get into this industry, um, information on exactly what this industry entails. And, you know, quite honestly, uh, once a lot of folks find out what it, it, it takes to be successful, there's a, there's, a, there's a drop-off. But then there's always someone else who now may have resources that didn't have them before that are ready to fill in that spot. So mm. that's what essentially goes live today. Um, again, the uh, unlimited licenses, and we're waiting for Creo to uh, let us know when the uh, limited licenses will then be uh, provided uh, the opportunity for folks to apply for. And that should be within the next uh, 60 days or so. Yeah. So I want to get you to clarify a term you used there, yeah. equity applicants. Um, this is about creating opportunities for people who were disproportionately affected by the way things were before we legalized marijuana in Michigan. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. I mean, and, and what we did was we looked at language and took, I'm not going to say it was uh, a match for match, but there's pretty much the same language that you see from the state of Michigan that uh, provides the definition of an equity applicant. And you just hit the nail right on the head. Essentially, it's uh, individuals that come from a, a municipality that has been disproportionately impacted by uh, cannabis um, and, and, and by an arrest. So the city of Detroit overwhelmingly falls into that category. So uh, we have 
I worked extremely hard, and I don't want us to forget our legacy Detroiters. You know, in 2020, we and 21, we asked folks to you know sign up and register because this is uh, a, a, the opportunity for longtime Detroiters to be provided those benefits I mentioned earlier, potential land uh, opportunities that the city will be offering, potential uh, uh, discounts on uh, licensing that we will be able to offer. We've asked folks to apply for that, and they have continued to do so. Um, we have about 500, maybe 600 uh, legacy Detroiters that have been certified thus far. So, you know, that's that's the equity applicant slash legacy Detroiter track, because we did not want uh, legacy Detroiters and equity applicants who, as I mentioned before, typically do not have the same uh, level of resources as non-equity applicants, didn't want them having to compete against each other. So uh, the process is definitely a um, slower than some folks would have liked to have seen. They wanted to see a huge explosion if you talk to many uh, within the industry. But we've got a balance with uh, many members of the community who says, hey, I, I wanted, I voted in 2018 for the uh, decriminalization of, of, of marijuana, but I didn't necessarily want a, a business on my block. So there's a balance that we have to, to, uh, to maintain uh, as we, you know, venture into this this new industry in the city of Detroit, adult hmm. use cannabis. So, so how comfortable are you that the concerns you had before about medical dispensaries uh, and their clustering, I guess, in the city of Detroit, and their clustering really in certain places uh, in the city of Detroit, won't play out in this new context with recreational. In other words, uh, what about this ordinance uh, kind of reins in the things that that we saw before that, that had lots of us who live in the city really concerned? Well, I mean, if you just look at the, the climate of the medical industry in the city of Detroit, it, it's not the wild, wild west anymore. It was prior to us coming up with the zoning regulations for the industry, which called for a thousand feet uh, away from each other, a thousand feet away from churches, uh, schools, um, uh, daycares as, as well. Um, so, so once we put those regulations in place, we saw a number of the um, just again wild wild west. A lot of these businesses ended up having to conform with with our ordinance, and they shut down. And it it, it brought some rhyme and reason to how the process would take place. We then had our residents have an opportunity to uh, chime in when it came to uh, land use uh, for these in, uh, businesses, and some have been turned away by the community. Some have been embraced by the community as well. That's essentially what the goal is, to ensure that residents have um, uh, a, a real stake in what, what takes place in, in their neighborhood. So I, I, I don't want us to get stuck on what things looked like back in, let's say, 2000 and. 14, 13, mm -hmm. because we had about 240 plus uh, illegals all around the city of Detroit. They were plopped right next to each other. Uh, we didn't. Uh, once we created the uh, licensing for medical marijuana, uh, we also created zoning ordinance as well. And 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 I can you know just looking at it right now, I, I can assume just by having conversations with my colleagues as well as residents that the uh, ordinance for the zoning ordinance for uh, adult use will mirror in many ways what we see with the um, with the medical. So it's not the wild, wild west. There are still concerns that are out there um, in industrial areas for sure. But um, I, I think that when you look at our ordinance and you compare it to some other major cities, um, we are quite a bit more conservative than, than, than many. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think of uh, the state of marijuana legalization here in the state of Michigan, in the city of Detroit in particular. Uh, let's go to Alberta in uh, Detroit. This is uh, actually Alberta Tinsley Talabi, uh, a, former, uh, a former Detroit City Council woman. Alberta, what's on your mind? Good morning hey. to both of you and to your listeners. Can you hear me? Yep, we sure can. Okay. Um, I have to raise the issue, and I'm going to be calm about this. There's a lot of discussion, but where does prevention fall in all of this? There will be people, because it's just human nature, who will become addicted. Subsequently, our children are growing up today in an environment 
where it's a, everything goes. And personally, I have an issue with that as a parent, as a grandparent, and as one who, when I was on council, chaired the partnership for a drug-free Detroit, which brought over which brought millions of dollars to help fight substance abuse in our community. And I don't hear that voice being raised today. And that, to me, is problematic. Because hmm. everyone is not doing it. Let me assure you that. Yeah. Uh, Alberta, I, let me first say that I tend to fall pretty heavily into the camp of what you uh, started off your call, talking about the concern about um, drug addiction in our city and and the connection between marijuana and that. And I know there are some really important differences between marijuana and other drugs, but talk to a drug dealer about what he or she uh, sells to people. And marijuana is always in the mix there. And, and I think we haven't spent enough time thinking and talking about that uh, as a state before we legalize this. But, but James Tate, I want to give you a chance to react to what Alberta's uh, concerns are here. Yeah, and I just want to thank uh, former council member Tinsley Talabi for all of the work that she's done in the um, the, 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 the the sphere of keeping people away from uh, drugs and drug abuse. Um, here's the thing: sixty-eight percent of Detroiters voted for recreational marijuana or adult use in the city of Detroit. That's larger than the fifty-seven percent uh, who voted in the entire state. Uh, to support it. So clearly there is a desire to do so. There is a line item that we put in place for uh, drug abuse uh, education um, and, and assistance. I don't have that dollar amount in front of me right now, and I apologize for that. That was not, uh, I don't have that with me. I can gather that. But there is an element that is in place. That is uh, certainly something that is concerning for us, uh, not just when it comes to the fact of having adult use licensing, because the reality is there are individuals who are using and depending on who you're, you're talking to, quote unquote, abusing cannabis today, right now. So that's a clear concern that we have right now today. Um, what I've been really focusing on and making sure to the best of our ability that we keep the children out of these facilities. So we've created a real uh, uh, earnest um, uh, penalties for ent entities that uh, allow for children in inside or are, are deemed to have been selling to children, which is a major concern for, for, for many, many Detroiters. Uh, you can not only be shut down, but prevented from having a uh, license in the future as well. So that is a huge, huge deterrent for a number of individuals who would potentially go astray of the ordinance. Now, can we say that no one will try to do that? Well, you know, human nature is, is such that we try to test the boundaries, uh, but we need the assistance from the community. If you know of any entity or individual that is, in fact, uh, trying to uh, sell these items to our children, uh, we need you to reach out to, uh, to, to the city of Detroit so we can take, it, take action. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, James Tate, Detroit City Council President Pro Tem, uh, it was really great to have you here with us to explain the current state of uh, of this ordinance in the city of Detroit. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Next up, we are going to continue talking about marijuana legalization here in Michigan with a look at how the cannabis industry is doing statewide. We want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Cindy in the Cass Corridor, Joanna in Detroit, we'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today. 1019 WDETM. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about it being April 20th today, 420, as marijuana 
enthusiasts would refer to it. Uh, it's a good time to check in on the state of our legalization journey here in the state of Michigan. Of course, uh, we had a statewide referendum to legalize marijuana for recreational uses a few years ago. Uh, we've seen since then the the legalization sort of journey unfold. Uh, it didn't happen instantly, of course. Uh, there were lots of things that had to be considered, lots of things that needed to be set up in order for it to take hold. Uh, we're talking today with folks about where we are in that journey. And I want to welcome another voice to that conversation now. Robin Schneider is the executive director of the Michigan Cannabis Industry Association. Uh, Robin, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on. Happy 420. Yes, happy 420 to you as well. We had you on exactly a year ago to talk mm -hmm. about how this industry was doing then. And at the time you said there had been some ups and downs, just as I said in, in the open to this uh, conversation, it's been a journey. Uh, so uh, we were talking last year about things reaching uh, record highs in early 2021 and that things were moving uh, faster. I, I wonder if you can catch us up to April 20 of 2022 and where we are now. Absolutely. So over the last six months, we've you know witnessed the wholesale prices of cannabis uh, dropping rapidly um, from from where they were the prior year, and that's because uh, you know there's the state has. Uh, issued a number of, of grow licenses um, that have, um, you know, in accordance with the ballot referendum that was passed. And um, so, you know, the natural progression is as uh, supply is increased, those prices start to come down. And we're starting to see those lower prices being reflected at the retail level. Um, and those savings are being passed off to consumers. Hmm. Um how has the pandemic affected business? And is that something that we will see continue now that we're in a different phase of the pandemic? Or uh, is that something that might have been kind of temporary? Yeah, so I think that, you know, the cannabis industry was actually deemed essential during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, our sales soared during that time. And, um, you know, what, what we found was a lot of people who were, um, you know, maybe stuck at home and struggling, um, used cannabis for anxiety relief. And um, uh, we saw a number of people switching from alcohol um, to cannabis during the, the, the pandemic. And, you know, it, it impacted our sales in a positive direction. Um, and we expect, you know, with the summer coming upon us, uh, Michigan's a tourist state and we'll probably see some of our highest um, sales numbers will come in uh, July um, of the summer. So we expect to see, you know, an increase in sales and, and including when Detroit, um, you know, st starts their uh, retail sales there, we'll see a, an increase there as well. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone's call. And tell us what you make of uh, the effort to get uh, things going with legal <laughs> marijuana recreational sales here in the state of Michigan. It is April 20th, uh, the day that, uh, that lots and lots of people think about uh, cannabis and marijuana. Uh, let's start uh, with Cindy in the Cass Corridor. Cindy, welcome to the show. Yeah, uh, I, I just want to correct Talabi that marijuana is not addictive. Nobody's ever OD'd on it like they do on heroin, alcohol, uh, crack. Nobody's ever died from it, and it's not addictive. And uh, I, uh, you have some of the same cannabinoids, I think they call them cannabinoids, but they're the same ones that are already in your body and it's a healing thing hmm. actually i take a tincture before i go to sleep and it helps me relax and sleep better so uh but cindy I i'm glad more, you yeah. i'm glad you called and 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 made that point um you know i i also said when we were talking with uh former councilwoman tinsley talabi that you know there are some important differences between marijuana and other drugs and and you you've pointed out some but I, the, the the concern that i have always had with 
with that, particularly in the city of Detroit, is the connections that exist between uh, marijuana sales and other drugs, uh, the the addictive nature of the other drugs uh, that are sold by the same people who sell marijuana, who sold marijuana illegally in the in, in the city. The the sort of economic tie between those things is important. Um, but there's also the the federal and employment disdain that that remains for marijuana that makes it. Um, uh, that makes legalization more difficult. Uh, this question of um, of how to manage statewide legalization when you still have uh, laws on the books at the, in the federal context that uh, make it difficult, and and of course the the disproportionate impacts that um, you know the war on drugs has had on. Uh, cities like Detroit. I think those are things that we all just need to keep in mind and be thinking about um, when we're when we're talking about these issues. I do wish we'd had a more robust conversation about it, just to be honest, uh, before we went ahead and and just legalized it. Uh, Robin Schneider, I wonder what your reaction is to this debate about uh, the the impact that marijuana and um, and marijuana sales have on a city like like Detroit? So I think that all of your points that you just re- raised are the exact reason why the voters of Michigan, you know, so overwhelmingly voted to legalize cannabis because, mm-hmm. um, you know, previously cannabis was being, you know, sold by dealers um, who were often carrying other drugs. Um, that, that product was, you know, not tested. Um, we, we didn't know, you know, what was in it or, you know, could be in it. Um, and obviously, you know, people were not in situations where they were being carded or ID'd to make sure they were old enough. And so absolutely, um, I was a part of the campaign coalition to regulate marijuana like alcohol. And what we find is that when we legalize marijuana, um, it's, you know, instead of uh, people going to meet in parking lots and on corners. They're going into a safe and secure location in a well-lit parking lot, um, you know, where there's security measures in place and the product has been tested for safety and there are not other drugs being sold along with it. And so that is the whole point of legalization. Um, and to your other point there um, that you made, and I agree with you, it is absolutely important to, you know, protect our youth um, you know, from all drugs, including, um, you know, cannabis use, just like we would with alcohol. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm with you there. And that's why, you know, the voters said 21 and older. Um, but with that being said, you know, to your other point, you know, the war on drugs created the mass incarceration of, mm-hmm. of cannabis users in our country, um, including my own father, which is what led me to the legalization movement. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, his use was medicinal. He was an all-American, you know, MSU heavyweight wrestling champion and, um, you know, and ended up in, in, in jail, right, for cannabis use. And, and that created, you know, multi-generational damage to my family wow. um, that, that will never be repaired, okay? And so with that being said, I know there are families just like mine all across the state 420 isn't just about going and buying cannabis while you can go and get great deals. There's sales and giveaways <laughs> at retailers all across the state today, and that's very exciting. But for a lot of us, 420 is about celebrating our freedom yeah. um, and the freedom of our fathers and our brothers and the people who were targeted for their you know, cannabis use. And in most cases was medicinal. And now we get to celebrate and we get to participate in, in programs like expungement and clemency and all of that important work of going and cleaning up that mess that cannabis prohibition caused to our families to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Robin, I, I did not know that story <laughs> about your father. And I wonder, I wonder how many people do. Is that something that you've talked about an awful lot in your work? I have. Yes, yeah. I have. And, yeah. you know, and, and it's something that, you know, inspired me. And, and um, you know, I mean, I, I, I know that there are a lot of people, little girls out there, you know, whose dad went to prison for, for cannabis. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, it's maybe, you know, too late, you know, the lot, the hurt was done to my family, but we prevented that from happening to other families moving forward. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say 420 is a real meaningful celebration to people like me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, Cindy, really appreciate the call.
and the really important points that you made. Let's go to Bob in the Upper Peninsula. Bob, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for uh, having me on the show. I listen to sure. you every day. Oh, thank um, you. I just wonder, you know, where in my lifetime, you know, I've never heard the same degree of outrage about alcohol. Alcohol seems to always get a pass. And then and marijuana is labeled the gateway drug, you know. Um, so I think it's disingenuous to have any conversation about legalization of marijuana without talking about why is it that alcohol and the alcohol industry gets a pass. Hmm. Great um, question. And, um, and with, yeah, go ahead. I was just also say with regard to prohibition of alcohol, when there was prohibition of alcohol, was not alcohol handled by the criminal element? Sure. Well, I mean, it absolutely was. And I mean, we're sitting here in Detroit, uh, which was uh, in many ways an epicenter of uh, the illegal uh, alcohol uh, industry, I guess you'd call it, uh, during during Prohibition. There are lots of, of things about our city that, that took shape around uh, the illegal sale and smuggling of alcohol across the Detroit River in many cases. Um, yeah, the, you're absolutely right that, that there's a double standard uh, at work there and, and that, uh, you know, this, this push for legalization of, of marijuana, I think, answers in some ways uh, that double standard. Bob, I appreciate uh, you listening all the way up there in the UP and, uh, and calling in. Let's next go to Matthew, who is driving up north on a Telegraph Road. Uh, Matthew, welcome to the show. Hello, you hear me? I sure can. Okay, great. Uh, well, my opinion is, is uh, in some ways, I think we rush to judgment. I mean, because we really don't have any scientific evidence on any of this one, because A, it's a, it's, the feds make it a class A drug, to, so to study it, it's really difficult. And we don't know what it does, especially this modern pot, which is 30% THC. I mean, it is really potent stuff. And we don't know what it actually does. I mean, it, it, people use it, we don't know. Hmm. And I just think it's it's too early to, we should have, like, made it less, you know, uh, got rid of the Class A drug thing and maybe studied a little bit before we just said, oh, let's do it. Now, I'm not against, I'm against the felony thing. The felony thing for smoking a pot or having a an ounce of pot was just stupid. That was just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that should be, we should just forgive all them people. You know, that's, you don't have a felony charge for that. But as far as the pot and everybody's saying it's less potent or does less damage, we don't know. And I guess that's all I have to say. Yeah, I, I, that, that's a really great point, Matthew. I'm glad you called. Um, uh, so I, I, I want to get you, Robin, to talk uh, about... First, the federal context uh, for, mm -hmm. for all of this, which is change, it's not changing, I guess, but there's some movement, let's say, uh, mm -hmm. toward changing it. Debbie Dingell, one of our members of Congress, was on the show uh, earlier this week talking about um, precisely that, that, that she's got a bill that would legalize marijuana. Many of the reasons motivating her are very similar to the things that motivate you, Robin, I want to, so I want to have you talk about that, but I also want to talk about the, uh, the, the research that Matthew's talking about that we're not able to do about, about marijuana and why that matters as well. So I don't agree that we're not able to do research. Um, in fact, there are a ton of programs, including federal programs and, and people who have licenses from the DEA to do cannabis research. So mm -hmm. that's just not true. The amount of data that we have, um, you know, double-blind studies and everything, I mean, it's, it's a lot of data. And, and um, you know, right now the state of but Michigan... If we, our, but if we legalized it or if it were changed, if we changed the schedule, we would be able to do much more. I mean, correct, it, it is controlled in a way that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so for, for right now in the state of Michigan, our um, first $20 million of tax revenue for the first two years actually going to fund a study on the effects of cannabis on uh, veterans with PTSD. So, um, you know, that is a study that, you know, the, the voters actually voted mm -hmm. um, in the ballot initiative to fund that study. Um, and, you know, we've got 
um, you know, those are those, those studies are underway. We're looking forward to seeing the results. Um, you know, and as far as, again, alcohol being le- legal, there's a lot of studies out there that demonstrate that alcohol actually kills people, yet it's legal. So I don't really think that, you know, um, we need to study it more to make it legal because the sky has not fallen and people are not dying. <laughs> but I know a lot of people who have died from pancreatitis and liver failure and all sure. of those things due to, to their drinking, but I don't know anyone who's died from cannabis use. So um, again, uh, you know, I think it just takes common sense to see that, you know, uh, cannabis is safer than alcohol and a lot of other substances that we use every day. So, um, you know, with that being said, um, you know, federal legalization, you know, obviously, the, you know, they're going to take their time and that's pretty common. Um, the states, you know, um, that's why we have the ability to do ballot initiatives and create our own laws and we have states' rights. Um, so that when the federal government fails to act in a timely manner on issues such as these and other controversial issues, um, you know, states can actually go ahead and, and change the laws and regulate themselves. And so, you know, that is not a new com- concept. Um, and, you know, eventually the, um, you know, the federal represent- representatives will catch up, you know, with the times and, and they'll legalize it federally as well. And then we'll have more studies, you know, on, on the impacts of cannabis, whether they be, you know, positive or negative, um, you know, and, and that'll all be a great thing. Okay. Uh, Robin Schneider, Executive Director of the Michigan Cannabis Industry Association. Always great to talk with you and really appreciate you coming by on 420 of 2022. Let's make a date now for 420 of 2023 and hope that things are uh, even better then. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Okay, when we come back, we are going to talk more about our Earth Week series, looking at sustainable technologies and how they might change the way we fight climate change. I'm going to talk with Michael Eliason, who has been looking at how we can build more carbon-neutral homes, buildings, and cities. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. In addition to it being 420 today, it's also Earth Week. And we have been talking uh, a lot about um, uh, renewable energies, uh, carbon, net carbon zero uh, life, and the kind of innovations that might permit us to continue our lives sort of the way that we are living now without making huge, huge sacrifices um, in order to save the planet. Uh, Carbon energy, of course, is just a part of our way of life, and it's embedded in the processes that do everything from producing our food to the ways that we go about our work to the transportation that we rely on. Everything in American life really is about carbon. And uh, as part of our Earth Week series, we want to look at some of these interesting technologies uh, that could be a bigger part of our life to reduce our carbon footprint. In this segment, we're taking a look at different home, building, and city infrastructure uh, that are both cool to look at and emit very little carbon. We've got Michael Eliason here to talk about all of this with us. Eliason is founder of Larch Lab, which is an architecture and urbanist studio and think tank in Seattle. Michael, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, Stephen. So you're a big fan of carbon neutral homes and buildings. How'd you get into that in the first place? And why are our buildings and our cities such an important space to experiment with this idea of carbon neutrality? Yeah, when uh, I was in college, I interned for an architecture firm in Freiburg, Germany for a year. Uh, The firm did a lot of really innovative work around low energy buildings, uh, incorporating mass timber, things that we weren't really doing in the U.S. for another 10 or 15 years. Uh, Freiburg is the, uh, quote, California of Germany. They get the most sun. Um, There's a strong push for sustainability there. It's kind of the solar center of of Europe. Uh, Really incredible city, pedestrian zones, uh, almost no cars in the core. So it was really kind of this 
great foundation. Um, you know, there's also uh, eco districts. There's this really family friendly eco district called Vauban, uh, which has passive house buildings, which are ultra low energy buildings, bow group in urban co-housing. Uh, and it was really bike friendly. I think the reason that it's so uh, important that we focus on buildings and cities is it's a huge, it's a huge component of our, our carbon budget, right? So uh, we want to live kind of low carbon lifestyles, uh, living in cities resource efficiently in low energy buildings, you know, walking, biking, transit are really kind of the ways that the IPCC is, has indicated that we get there. So I always want to ask this question when we talk about these kinds of technologies, and I think it's uh, a limiting question in some ways. How realistic is it for someone like me, for instance, to even consider the possibility of living in a home that's carbon neutral? How accessible is that? And how do, I guess, we make it more accessible to more people? Uh, that's a really interesting question. So I think that it's it's uh, attainable, it's accessible. Um, there are opportunities for subsidizing uh, low energy homes in Europe. There's a really big push for uh, retrofitting and um, building new social housing or alternative kind of non-market forms of housing like cooperatives, co-housing, uh, rental syndicates. So I, I think that there are paths forward to it, but it's really, we need uh, government support. We need uh, regulations that, that sort of, you know, it's the carrot and the stick. So we need some mandates uh, and we need some incentives and subsidies to really kind of uh, push us in that direction. Um, so what are the benefits of living in a city that's more dense and greener and has more homes? that are more tightly connected. That's one of the big sort of principles behind this idea of carbon neutrality or limited carbon. Why should we be pushing for that? Well, I, I think the, the big one is this, there's a big opportunity to change uh, the way that we live in cities. So historically, the last hundred years or so, it's kind of been a public health nightmare, right? Pollution, noise. And so when we think about like how our cities will change uh, in response to, to climate action and, and global warming, there are opportunities to uh, have, you know, prioritize active transit. So biking, walking, so you have a more healthy population in that regards. Your walking places, everything that you need should be closer to you. So you're not having to drive, you know, a couple of miles to, go to the grocery store and drive a couple of miles to go to daycare and then, and, you know, drive to work. So the idea is that maybe it's it's a way of rethinking our cities and rethinking mobility uh, so that, you know, you can do everything, you know, so you walk to the store, you walk to daycare or drop off your kids at school. So I think it's it's about kind of shortening those distances. Um, it's also, I think, an opportunity for uh, better public health outcomes uh, with regards to, you know, lower air pollution. So that's uh, asthma and heart disease get reduced, uh, less noise pollution, which is associated with dementia. But I think there's also the, this solidarity components, right? Building up community, living with young and old, kind of reconnecting as a society in a way that the U.S. hasn't been so great at the last couple of decades. And I think it's kind of important to note that you're not just talking about a technology or a series of technologies that make it possible for us to have a smaller carbon footprint. It is also, there is a social and social cultural component to this that you're, that you're really emphasizing. Yeah, I think that's it's definitely part of it. It's, you know, at Large Lab, we one of our focuses is on Bow Group, which are um, self-developed urban co-housing. It's about people coming together, building the kinds of housing, the kind of life that they need to essentially live a, a low-carbon life, uh, to have support and solidarity. You know, so many family structures today are, are disparate and wildly different than they were 50 years ago. The nuclear family doesn't really exist in the same way, right? Think about how many different household formations there are. LGBTQ uh, households, uh, single parents, multi-generational. So I think it's really about kind of accommodating this diversity of, of lifestyles and house, household formation in, in really the way that we live. Um, I'm talking with um, I'm talking with Michael Eliason. He's the founder of Larch Lab, an architecture and urbanist studio and think tank. He wrote a piece in the Volt Substack, Substack titled "The Five Coolest Trends in Urbanism in Europe." We're talking uh, about green infrastructure, really, in cities, uh, the way that we live in cities like Detroit where we've got huge carbon footprints right now, lots of single family homes, many of them 
quite large. Uh, how would we rethink that in a way that would shrink that carbon footprint? What kinds of things could we do? Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. What do you make of our city's sprawling nature? Do you wish that we had more density, that we had restaurants and parks and homes closer together? Uh, do you think it's possible to create a denser greener city out of a place like Detroit? Uh, do you think there are technologies that could help us uh, lower the carbon footprint that uh, we have? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Michael, you focus on mass timber buildings, essentially replacing concrete and steel with wooden beams. I wonder if you could spend a little time talking about what that looks like and, and why that matters in this movement. Yeah, so one of the big pushes with uh, how we move forward in constructing buildings is decarbonizing them. So re reducing the amount of carbon emitted during the construction. And so mass timber offers this ability to use resource efficiency, uh, a material that can sequester carbon, right? If we're using uh, sustainably harvested wood and then replanting it, right, there's this concept that we could basically be net zero in terms of carbon. There's a little bit of fuzzy math that goes on with that. And there's a lot of people still trying to figure out how to actually quantify that. But I think there are a bunch of other aspects to mass timber buildings that are great. They go together fast. It's a super quiet and clean construction site. Uh, it's all prefabricated. So it's um, it goes together really tightly. It goes together really quickly. Um, there's not a, a lot of waste generated on sites. Uh, so it's kind of higher quality. Uh, it's more durable. It's better thermally versus concrete or steel as well. Uh, so, you know, in terms of energy performance of the building after it's built, uh, it's also kind of much more uh, energy efficient. And then it's, you know, it's wood is great to look at, right? There's the biophilic components of looking at wood. Uh, and so I think it really offers kind of this rethink of how we've done construction in the last, you know, century effectively of of really moving forward. And, you know, they have mass timber buildings uh, in the U.S. now that are skyscrapers, low rise, mid rise, uh, you know, small detached houses, ADUs even. So it, it also encompasses kind of this broad range of, of potentialities in terms of how we build. And again, the question, how accessible is this kind of building how how can we make this something that is more in use in more places yeah so the um the government incentives i think are a big one there aren't a lot of manufacturers in the u.s although that is changing pretty dramatically there are more options in the eu there are more subsidies in the eu eu for mass timber construction and so it's really taken uh taken hold there a little bit sooner and quicker than we have here but there's a lot of interest um you know mass timber social housing is definitely a thing so i think that you know in time it will be attainable uh, it's really going to be a question of you know how, how resource efficient can we be with it? So are we using it efficiently or are we just putting big panels of wood together and maybe it's not so uh, intelligent in the way that we're using it? And then, you know, if it's sustainably harvested or not as well, because if we're not sustainably harvesting it, then, uh, you know, we're just completely blowing our, our carbon savings. Sure. Are there cities we should be looking at that are getting this right or at least more right than than other places? Oh, this is an interesting question. So the city of Amsterdam has a, a wood uh, requirement in their construction, and I think that cities could definitely move in that direction. There's no city in the U.S. that has a passive house mandate yet, and passive house is this low energy standard. Uh, basically, the EU mandates all buildings be close to passive house uh, effective, I think, 2020. Um, Brussels had a really good approach to um, to basically incentivizing developers and architects and the trades uh, through incentives, financial incentives, subsidies, promotions, and actually trading out people so that they would know how to, to build this. So there was this training the trades program as well. And they've really become a lighthouse in terms of uh, in terms of sustainable buildings, low energy buildings, and they're now exporting that, you know, technology and know-how to the U.S., China, all of these other places. And so, you know, the IPCC indicated that weak energy codes were a huge uh, 
uh, risk for carbon lock-in. And so, you know, I think that we'll start to see cities, hopefully in the U.S., uh, if not mandating things like passive house, at least their own buildings, because cities, you know, build and manage a lot of buildings, uh, will be retrofitted and built to, to passive house standards with mass timber uh, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there are there impediments to America having more of these passive house uh, kind of buildings and those that are similar. Like, what do we need to do to bring more of these projects home from a policy perspective? Yeah, I think historically it's just been not a lot of people knew what it was and there was difficulty in getting products. The manufacturing is the big one. We don't really mandate passive houses, so they're are no real window manufacturers uh, in the US that can make the high quality, it's kind of the Porsche of windows, right? These triple pane airtight windows. Um, you know, we, we have airtight membranes, we, we can import windows. There are some companies that make them. The, the real one is just the policy needs to, uh, kind of it's the carrot and the stick again. We need, we need mandates. Uh, our buildings in the next couple of years should be hitting passive house consistently, uh, but we also need, you know, effective subsidies uh, from the government uh, as well. Okay, uh, Michael Eliason of Larch, it was really great to have you here for this conversation about uh, sustainable housing and buildings in cities. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to be talking about the significance of wind energy and transmission lines in Michigan and beyond, continuing our look at new green infrastructure as part of Earth Week. 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.